I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9. Here we find a description of the physical stature of the first king of Israel, King Saul. Now I want you to notice what Saul appeared like externally. 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 2 says this, And he had, this is uh, speaking about Saul's father, And he had a choice and handsome son, whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. If you looked at Saul, you would have said, this is a win-win proposition. Because he was tall, he had charisma, and he was handsome. In fact, I believe that God saw potential in Saul. Because Saul was God's choice to be the first king of Israel. Notice verse 17 of 1 Samuel chapter 9. So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. He was the Lord's choice. God saw potential in Saul, just like he saw potential, just like Jesus saw potential in Judas. Now when Saul was introduced to the people, the people were also, also very impressed. Notice 1 Samuel chapter 10 verses 23 and 24. 1 Samuel 10, 23 and 24. This is when Saul is actually introduced to Israel as the king. So they ran and brought him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And even Samuel is impressed. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen, that there is no one like him among all the people? So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. Samuel was impressed. The people were impressed. But of course, the Bible tells us that Saul did not live up to his potential. He did not live up to the assets that he had. And instead of being a stellar king in Israel, he was continually disobedient. And eventually he committed suicide. And so it became necessary to elect a new king. Hopefully, having learned the lesson that appearance can be deceiving. So God instructed Samuel to go to Jesse's home. Go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 1. God says to Samuel, go to Jesse's home, and you're going to choose there the king that I, have, that I will show you should be the next king of Israel. And so it says there, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, 
seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. So God says to Samuel, I have chosen my king. Now, did God know which of the sons of Jesse was going to be king? Of course he did. So why did he follow the process that he did? I want you to notice what the process was. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6, and then we'll jump down to verses 8 and 9. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6, and ver then verses 8 and 9. And I want you to notice that three of, three of the sons of Jesse are mentioned by name. It says here in verse 6, So it was, when they came, that Samuel looked at Eliab, and he was impressed. It says, And said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So Jesse called Abinadab. And made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And so each of the sons comes before Samuel. And the Lord says, Not this one, not this one, not this one. What an interesting process. God already knew who the king was going to be. And yet God has Samuel go through this process. We know the reason why. It's because in the first example of Saul, Samuel and the people had looked at the actual but not at the potential. They had looked at the outward appearance, but they did not see the inward potential. Notice 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, where this is made very, very clear. But the Lord said to Samuel, this is before Samuel actually goes through this process. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see a man as man sees for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What was God trying to teach Samuel? He was trying to teach Samuel that what we see is not always what we get. That God looks at a person not by what they are, but by what they can become through the power and through the grace of God. Now let's take a look at how four persons looked at little David, who was the choice, because he's the last one that comes forward. Let's see how Samuel looked at David. 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verses 11 and 12. 1 Samuel 16 verses 11 and 12. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest. Underline that word, the youngest. And there he is, keeping the sheep. <laughs> the youngest, and he's not even a soldier. 
He has no experience in battle. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send him and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, <laughs> with bright eyes, and good looking. He was cute. <laughs> and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Who would have guessed? A mommy's boy. <laughs> A keeper of sheep with no experience in battle. Good looking. No battle scars. That's how Samuel saw him. How did Saul see David? Uh, you remember the story when David said, I'll go fight that giant. What did Saul say? 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 33. See, they're seeing David as he was. 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 33. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. In other words, here we find Saul seeing the actual, but not the potential. He saw what was before his eyes, not what could be. How did the three brothers of David look at him? Well, in chapter 17, we find the story of David and Goliath. Go with me to chapter 17, and we'll read verse 11, and then 13 and 14, and verse 28. 1 Samuel chapter 17, and verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. I bet you you can't guess who was in the, uh, who was in the army of Israel. Eliab, Abinadab, and Shema. They were cowards. Now we know why they weren't chosen. Let's continue reading. Notice verse 13. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to battle. The names, now the same three names. Notice that all the sons are not named. Only three of them are named when the king is chosen. Now they're named as being cowards. It says the three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shema. Verse 14, David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. Now notice verse 28. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And when David said, I'll go fight the giant. And Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left these few sheep in the wilderness? You're a shepherd boy. I know your pride and your insolence, the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to what? You have come down to see the battle. How did his brothers look at David? The little shepherd boy. How did Saul look at David? The little shepherd boy. How did Samuel look at David? The little shepherd boy. Now, the question is, how did Goliath look at David? <laughs> 
See, they can only see what's before their eyes. They see the actual, but they don't see the potential because God looks at the heart. And so it says in 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verses 42 to 44, this is Goliath's view. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. The worst mistake that you can commit on a battlefield is to underestimate your enemy. For he was only a youth, ruddy and good looking. I guess this would mean that Goliath was ugly. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Huh, now, now God is involved. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. You see, the issue here is that human beings could only see the actual, they could not see the potential. They saw David as he was, and not as he, as he could become through the grace and through the power of God. I had to learn this lesson of looking, looking at people as they are, instead of looking at people as they can become. I taught theology for six years in our Seventh-day Adventist University in the city of Medellin, Colombia, back in the late 70s and early 80s. I had students come through my classrooms that were stellar academically. Students that never got less than a 4.0 GPA. And I must admit that these students, I said, these students cannot miss. These are going to be the best workers in the field. But you know what? Many of those who were 4.0 students, when they got into the field, were a bust. And many of them are not even in the work anymore. However, there were some who struggled to get a C average. I mean, they studied hard. They did the best they could. I think of one individual, one student I had. I'll tell you his name. His name was Yaguaraparo. <laughs> he, was, he was from the state of Sucre in Venezuela, eastern Venezuela. I wouldn't have given 10 cents for that guy. I mean, he got D's and he got C's, and I know he studied hard. And my perspective was, this guy's just not going to be any success because he can't get a high GPA. You know what? He became the champion soul winner in Venezuela for year after year after year. And so having the benefit of hindsight, which is 2020, you know, I've wanted to get back into the classroom and teach sometime. Because the Lord has taught me not to look at people as they are, but as they can become. Not to look at the outward appearance, but to look at the heart. That's exactly what Jesus did. Let me share with you an interesting experience. You know, I went to the mission field when I was four years old with, with my parents. My dad worked as president of the West Venezuela Conference, and then he was president of the East Venezuela Conference. Part of my dad's field was uh, La Gran Sabana. Now that might not ring a bell, but that's where David Gates' airplane went down. And uh, where the Guianas are. 
And uh, being that it was part of my dad's field, uh, he had to go visit the Davis Indians, as they're called. And so uh, my dad, for the first time that he went down there, you know, there was no road at that time. Now they have a road where you can get down there, but at that time there was no way to get in except on a one-engine uh, one plane. And it only came in once a week. And so my dad flew in. He says that it looked like the plane was going to land on top of the trees. And then suddenly there was this unpaved landing strip. And um, my dad uh, tells the story of meeting with these Indians for the first time and then them telling him how they had built the church, which was the only building that had a concrete floor and a zinc roof. All of the others had mud walls and mud floor and, uh, you know, thatch roofs. Well, it just so happens that they had walked three days across the jungle to Georgetown, British Guiana at that time, and they had bought the sacks of concrete and the zinc, and they had walked seven days back to the village so that God would have a special house. And to this day, you can see that church. It's in the, the little town of Apoipo. If you want to read the story of the Davis Indians, it's a fascinating story. Uh, a few years ago, or actually many years ago, a book was written by Boonton Herndon called The Seventh Day. Some of you might remember that book where the story of the Davis Indians is told, how God reached the chief of, of this Indian tribe just by giving him a dream and telling him that Elder Davis was going to come and when he came that they were supposed to listen to him. It's an amazing story. But the point that I'm, I'm trying to bring through this story is that uh, one of the industries that these uh, Indians have is diamond mining. And so when my dad was down there, the Indians said, would you like to go with us and, uh, and go to the mine and see how we mine diamonds? So my dad said, yeah, that would be very interesting. So early one morning, the Indians took my dad to where they mined diamonds. So that he watched the Indians as they were working and, uh, you know, they, they would pick out from many stones that looked like rhinestones, they picked out certain stones and uh, they would show them to my dad, they would say, this, this is a diamond. And my dad, uh, you know, actually I saw these, they gave my dad 22 little tiny diamonds. And uh, when my dad looked at the diamond, he said, that's a diamond? Yeah, that's a diamond. He says, but that doesn't look like a diamond. Have you ever seen an uncut diamond? Do you know what it looks like? You know, sometimes when you're, on, when you're walking on the beach, a piece of glass washes up onto the beach. You know, it's been in the water for a long time. It's opaque and it's smooth and it has no luster. That's what an uncut diamond looks like. It just looks like a common piece of glass. But what happens when the diamond is cut. That which looks ordinary becomes very what? Becomes very beautiful. And that's the way people are. You know, people have rough edges. You know, when we look at certain people, we say, man, this individual could not be useful in God's cause. And yet, in the hands of God, that person can fulfill great potential. It makes me th think of the sons of Jacob. Let me just share with you some things about the sons of Jacob. Have you ever heard of Simeon and Levi? 
these guys were savages. Let me tell you a little bit about the story. There was a young man called Shechem, and he fell in love with Dinah, which was the only sister that the sons of Jacob had. And they had sexual relations before marriage, and she became pregnant. Now there was a problem because uh, Shechem loved Dinah and wanted to marry Dinah. So, as was the custom, Shechem's dad, Hamor, <laughs> said, you know, Shechem wants to marry Dinah. And Simeon and Levi say, that's fine. We have no problems with that. But there's only one condition, and that is that uh, our, our sister cannot marry an uncircumcised man that lives among uncircumcised people. And so all of the men have to be circumcised. And if all of the men of Shechem become circumcised, then we will allow our sister to be married to Shechem. The Bible says that all the men said, yes, that's okay, we'll all get circumcised. And on the third day, when the pain was greatest, Simeon and Levi, and probably some others with them, fell upon all of the men of the city of Shechem and slew them because they couldn't fight because they were in terrible pain because of the circumcision. Can you imagine such a savage act as that? Simeon and Levi. And then you have Reuben. Coward. He wasn't willing to deliver Joseph. He said, I'll do it later. And then you have also Judah. who had sexual relations with his own daughter-in-law. And by the way, Reuben also committed incest with his father's concubine. You know, you look at one after another of these, you say, man, these individuals have absolutely no potential. And yet, you know what? Their names are immortalized forever on the gates of the holy city. Notice Revelation chapter 21 verse 12. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 12. It says, also speaking about the city, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Can you imagine the name of Simeon and Levi being written forever? on the gates of the holy city? Amen. Reuben, Judah, incredible. The reason is that God saw these young men not as they were, but by what they could become. Amen. And what could we say about the twelve apostles? <laughs> Big mouth Peter, a guerrilla fighter, Simon the Zealot, the sons of thunder, James and John. The philosopher, Doubting Thomas. Matthew, the internal revenue service agent. Judas, the conniving politician. The tallest and keenest, according to Ellen White. Who would have given ten cents for this bunch? And yet their names are immortalized on the foundations of the wall of the city forever.
We're told in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 14, Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Have mercy. Did Jesus see something in them that could not be seen with the naked eye? Of course he did. He saw them not as they were, but as they could become by his grace and by his power. Allow me to take one example from among the apostles to illustrate this point. Peter. We all remember what happened in Pilate's court. Peter was very sure of himself, wasn't, wasn't he? He said, oh, I'll never deny you, Lord. I'll be faithful even unto death. But the third time that he denied Jesus, he denied him in fisherman's language. Do you know why Peter denied Christ? Ellen White explains. Peter was not afraid of dying. He wasn't a coward. Because he was willing to take out the sword in the garden. Ellen White says that the reason why Peter denied Christ is because he was embarrassed to be associated with him. Because he had said that Jesus was the Messiah, and now Jesus was being led to the cross. He was embarrassed to be associated with Jesus Christ. The worst type of treason. And yet Jesus did not see in Peter the one who would deny him. He saw in Peter the champion of the gospel to the Jews. Amen. Had a great change taken place by the time the day of Pentecost came? Absolutely. A tremendous change. Now Peter is living up to his potential. It's not the actual, but it's the potential. In fact, notice Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. This is a very interesting verse. Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. And there are two Greek words that I want to underline. You know, when you read the New Testament in Greek, there, there's a lot of things that come out that don't come out when we read uh, in English. It says, speaking about the change in Peter and in the apostles, also in John, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, this is speaking about the Sanhedrin, and perceived that they were uneducated. The word uneducated in Greek is agramatos. They had no grammar. <laughs> but the next word is even more telling. That they were uneducated and untrained. The word untrained is idiotes. They were unlettered and idiots. <laughs> Had a change taken place. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, agramatos, and untrained, idiotes, they marveled. Why? And they realized that they had been with Jesus. Don't shortchange short what can happen to a person when that person is with Jesus. Amen. That's the only way that we can really live up to our potential. You see, the whole lesson that I want to get across, folks, is that we come across all kinds of people. I come across all kinds of people as a minister. You do as medical personnel. Isn't it true that usually we have a tendency to look at people by what we can get from them? or by what they are. You know, I found 
that some of the people that appear to be least able to be used by God are really those that are used by God. You know, I, I can just share this little, this little tidbit with you. You know, when, when I grew up, I thought that uh, kids who had Down syndrome were kind of weird and not normal. You know, you kind of keep away from them, at least when, when you're that age, you know. Well, when I went to pastor in West Frankfurt, the Shelton clan, as I call them, were my members. And uh, brother and sister Shelton had a little boy. His name is Jeffrey, or his name was Jeffrey. He died. Uh, he had Down syndrome. I learned so many things from that kid. I learned to love people no matter what. This kid, when, when I would go to visit the Sheltons, they live out on the country, and there was this great big tree in front of their house. And Jeffrey, of course, knew I was coming because I always call before I go. He would be waiting next to that big tree. I can still see it today. He would be waiting for me to arrive in the car. And when I arrived in the car, he would come running to where the car was. And when I got out of the car, he would, he would embrace me. And when I went into the house and I sat in the living room of the house, he would sit on my lap. You know, and he would pet me like this. And he'd, he'd give me a kiss. He was a mess when he ate. In church, when I was preaching and I got excited, he would stand up and he would also get excited. <laughs> he taught me a lot. I believe I'll see him in the kingdom. Amen. As God intended him to be. But you see... He taught me things that I would have never known unless I had come in contact with him. We should not see people as they are. We should see people as they can become through the grace of Christ. I want to end by telling you one last story. This is a story of Paul and Barnabas. In the book of Acts, we find that there was a sharp contention between Paul and Barnabas. It says there in the book of Acts, then after some days Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. I believe that this is Acts chapter 10 or 11. I, I didn't write down the chapter, but it's right in there, chapter 10 or 11. It's verse uh, 36. Somebody want to help me and tell me which chapter it is? It's either 10 or 11. It says, then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Verse 37, what is it? 15. Oh, it's 15? 15, okay. Verse 37, now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. In other words, Paul says, this guy's not useful for the work. He forsook us in Pamphylia. Verse 39. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. 
And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. Barnabas saw in Mark potential. The great apostle Paul saw no potential in him. Allow me to read you Ellen White's comment about this. Acts of the Apostles 169 and 170. She says, It was here that Mark, overwhelmed with fear and discouragement, wavered for a time in his purpose to give himself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work. Unused to hardships, he was disheartened by the perils and privations of the way. He had labored with success under favorable circumstances, but now amidst the opposition and perils that so often beset the pioneer worker, he failed to endure hardness as a good soldier of the cross. He had yet to learn to face danger and persecution and adversity with a brave heart. As the apostles advanced, and still greater difficulties were apprehended, Mark was intimidated, and losing all courage, refused to go farther and return to Jerusalem. That's what Paul saw. Listen carefully. This desertion caused Paul to judge Mark unfavorably and even severely for a time. Barnabas, on the other hand, was inclined to excuse him because of his inexperience. He felt anxious that Mark should not abandon the ministry, for he saw in him qualifications that would fit him to be a useful worker for Christ. In after years, his solicitude in Mark's behalf was richly rewarded, for the young man gave himself unreservedly to the Lord and to the work of proclaiming the gospel message in difficult fields. Under the blessing of God and the wise training of Barnabas, he developed into a valuable worker. And even the Apostle Paul, we're told in Acts of the Apostles 170, Paul was afterward reconciled to Mark and received him as a fellow laborer. In other words, Paul said, I was wrong. I did not see the potential. I saw the actual. I'd like to end by reading one statement by Ellen White about what God can do with people when they are in His hands. In Heavenly Places, page 267, Ellen White says, Christians are Christ's jewels. Here comes the diamond illustration. They are to shine brightly for Him, shedding forth the light of His loveliness. Isn't that a beautiful way of expressing it? Once again, she says, they are to shine brightly for Him, shedding forth the light of His loveliness. Their luster depends on the polishing they receive. They may choose to be polished or remain unpolished. But everyone who is pronounced worthy of a place in the Lord's temple must submit to the polishing process. Without the polishing that the Lord gives, they can reflect no more light than a common pebble. Christ says to man, you are mine, I have bought you. 
You are now only a rough stone, but if you will place yourself in my hands, I will polish you. And the luster with which you shall shine will bring honor to my name. No man shall pluck you out of my hand. I will make you my peculiar treasure. On my coronation day, you will be a jewel in my crown of rejoicing. What a beautiful state. So folks, why not be God-like? What does it mean to be God-like? What is our high calling? Our high calling is to reflect the character of Christ. When it's perfectly reproduced in his people, he will come to claim them as his own. Which requires that we see people as Jesus saw people. Not as they are, but as they can become. Not the actual, but the potential. And I pray to God that as we face people, ministerial duties, in the case of the ministers who are gathered here, as students, as dentists, as physicians, that each morning we will pray to the Lord, Lord, today I'm going to come in contact with people. Please, Father, help me to see people not as they are, not as they appear. Help me to see people as Jesus saw them. Help me to see people as what they can become in the hands of the master artist. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not seen us as we are because we would all be lost. We thank you that you see us as we can become through the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I ask that you will give us the heart of Jesus, that we might also see people as Jesus sees people. Lord, help us not to see people in the light of what we can get from them with mercenary motives. Lord, give us the heart of Jesus that we might see people as you see them. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of having been at this wonderful conference. We ask, Lord, that the spirit of the conference will be with us now as we go our different ways. And Lord, that this spirit might endure and impact our daily practice and our daily lives. We thank you, Father, for having been with us, and we thank you for hearing and answering our prayer. For we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.